This is a recording of Brexit and Imperial Nostalgia at Ideas for Freedom 2019 with Dr. Kath Fletcher and Professor Danny Dorling. The speakers are going to have about 30 minutes between them and then we'll have questions and comments from the floor. Um, so today we have um, Kath Fletcher um, speaking who teaches history at Swansea University and Danny Dorling who with Sally Tomlinson is the author of the recent book Rural Britannia, um, which is a book on Brexit and British em- and Empire. Um, so, Danny, take it away. Thank you. Um, try and do this in 14 minutes. Uh, last speaker, teaching assistant from, was it Darlington? Yes. Yeah, I learned to read my first word when I was eight, because uh, I was very slow. Um, the O-levels I got, because I'm old, so I got O-levels, not GCSEs, would have meant uh, that I would have been expelled from the school my children go to at age 16 as being non-academic, the labels. So she's got a point over what's going on. I've got a few pictures to show you um, about Brexit and changing ideas about Brexit. Brexit was a shock. Uh, some of you may say you knew it was going to happen and so on. There are always people who think they know the future. That's fine. It keeps you happy. Um, <laughs> but it was a shock for most people, not least of course, because of spread betting said it wasn't going to happen. And the spread betting has tended to get it right. Loads of things have happened since then. The slide I had before showed you the Brexit Party polling, how well it was uh, doing. It'll go away again. It disappears. This is local election results from last month. Uh, this is Labour doing as badly as the Tories. Okay, That's the BBC report. It's quite, it's quite funny, really. Um, I mocked up the graphic to kind of show what the BBC could have done. Um, let's take forward. May goes. Andrea Ledson was the final kind of kill of her. May's final words, but with enormous and enduring gratitude to have had the opportunity if she loses her voice and chokes because she cries for herself, uh, to serve the country I love. This is part of what Sally and I in the Royal Britannia are talking about. She thinks she's in a country called Britain. She really does. Just one, or she might call it UK-ish, I don't know. There are three countries in the province. They came together, but they didn't. Of course, Ireland was a colony, Wales was a colony. Scotland and England came together in a magic convenience when we realised that our pirates were getting gold from the Spanish and we could actually work together and be take over a lot of the world. There's the book, uh, War Britannia, From Brexit to the End of Empire. Lots of claims in the book, lots of stats, because that's what I do. What Sally does is look at textbooks, looks at education, looks at what people were taught at school, depending on how old they are, looks what we come to what we come to see as the truth. Uh, my favourite thing that Sally does is, is get the textbooks that people like Boris Johnson had in his prep school. And if you want to know where Boris's words come from, things like Watermelon Smiles and Piccadilly's, they come from what he read. He didn't think this stuff up. Um, I'm going to zoom you through the graphs in the books just to attempt you to get interested. This is the wide range of donors to lots of political parties that we have in Britain. Uh, and it's really interesting what's going on at the moment, because Brexit really isn't just the end of empire, it's the end of the Tory party. The banks thought they owned the Tory party. Um, the irony 
is that if you don't particularly like the fact that London had the biggest concentration of banking in Europe, they weren't particularly nice, it wasn't workers' liberty that helped bring it down. It was a bunch of Tories um, that have actually helped bring the City of London, in effect, to its knees. October 31st, there are no passports. Middle-tier banks have already left. Banking is spreading out to Munich, Amsterdam, Frankfurt, even down to Spain, to Dublin, and so on. Incredible uh, change. Meanwhile, we're doing this kind of thing. This is Border Force uh, protecting Lesbos from families in dinghies trying to get over from Greece, which you all know about. We've been bastards before. We have a nice track record of being bastards. Uh, 1905, Aliens Act. We say we're a safe haven for people from Eastern Europe, the Jewish people, and then we pass an act to stop them. We actually invited them in and passed an act then to stop them. We have form on this. Enoch Powell went out to the Caribbean and India, invited people to come over, workers, nurses, work in the hospitals, workers, bus drivers. A few years later, he tries to stop them with rivers of blood. 2003, we issue an invitation. We issue an invitation to Eastern Europe to come. We open up to A8 migration before almost anybody else. A few years later, we say you should not come. Uh, I think it's quite important that we don't do it again in about 20 or 30 years' time. These are the kind of images you get from the past uh, of our dislike. There are two sides to Brexit. One is who arranged and organised it, which is the far right. And the second thing is who voted for it, which is the middle class. 59% uh, of Leave voters are middle class. If you worry that comes from a survey, the error is 58 to 60%, ABC1. Um, but very different. And quite a lot of people who voted Brexit were racist. Not all of them. We were all racist to a degree, but quite a lot were. Empire. Cutting the world up. Why are we odd? Why out of all 28 European countries were we the first to try to leave? Something has to be strange about us. Why are we the most economically unequal? out of all 28 countries. Why do we have people like Enoch? There are weird and odd people in all countries, but we produce a spectacular series of bastards. Um, <laughs> we, we, and look at his eyes. Look at him. <laughs> this man really wanted to run India. That was his great disappointment. Um, it's kind of an excuse for Britain. But we developed an education system which was really, really good for running an empire. Schools for boys that taught them to be brutal, taught them that they were special. Our problem now is that we don't have that empire to run, but we still have the boys. <laughs> uh, here the boys. Um, I can't show you the actual picture because whichever of the boys' friends took it will sue me. Um, although the Spiegel uh, printed it recently in Germany. And here's Nigel. I don't know the client clown is. Uh, Nigel, who used to write his initials in his school on walls and so on. And yeah, well, look, look at her though. She doesn't quite look like Enoch, does she? She was happy then. It wasn't many years ago. She was opening her face. But why does she dislike people who are black so much that she would do with Rush? What was it about her background? What was it about growing up? just two or three miles to the east of Oxford at that time in the 1970s that made, I don't know, what could have been an otherwise pleasant woman unpleasant to do this thing. Operation Faken, if you don't know, the name comes from a word that was used 
in the manifesto of the man who shot all their school children in the island in, in Norway. I think it was a Home Office official, was a cry for help, who called it Operation Bacon. But bad things are going on. This is one of those mocked-up posters from the school census, about the school census, where you, if you get the right Allen key, you can undo the perspex and put your own poster in and so on. This is a young boy reading about do not fill in the school census with your nationality and ethnicity because they may deport you. There's a campaign to stop that being used. Any NF still here? Not many of them. Um, but I think it's really interesting. I knew the NF quite well as a child in the 1970s. I grew up two miles to the west of Theresa. Um, and I do wonder, the men, I mean, then they were young. Then they were 17, 18, 19. I was 14, 15, so it was a bit unfair. Um, and they didn't have much hair because they shaved it off. Now they don't have much hair. Now they're still just two years older than me. And they're there, and the views are there. But the views were made in a particular way. Here's Theresa's first cabinet. The most spectacularly, dis spectacularly disastrous cabinet of all time in British history by many ways of measuring it, the resignations, the scandals, and so on. Here's the chief executive of Vote Leave, Matthew Elliott, and you have to work out what drives Matthew Elliott. This really matters. It's a far-right thing. What was amazing is how few lets of tears there were at the beginning, and how absolutely tiny it is now. I'm sure I'm going to wind somebody up, so I won't go further, but I guess the questions will get onto this. But it was a far-right orchestrated thing that had been going on for years, and at the beginning, there were a few lexities. Now there's hardly any left. You have to come to Camden Girls' schools for a conference like this probably to find a few. Um, Dominic, Dominic Cummings. And again, ask what drove Dominic Cummings. By the way, they didn't think they were going to win. Really important. It was the first referendum of two or three. If Dominic had thought he was going to win, he would not have left all the evidence that he might have been involved, he says carefully because it's being filmed, might have been involved in breaking the law. They clearly didn't think they were going to win. The faces of Michael Gove and Boris the next day showed they didn't think they were going to win. They weren't ready to win. They weren't prepared to win. There's loads of correlations. Uh, the strongest, my favourite one, is with obesity. It has <coughs> nothing to do with obesity. This is vote leave on one side. How many adults were overweight on the other? These are areas. Point eight correlation, really, really strong. The academic who published this three weeks after the poll was taken apart by the tabloids. Uh, kind of fair enough. Um, it, it's a lovely example of a fake correlation or where there's an intervening variable. The intervening variable being migration. Uh, correlation with migration is about 0.79. The more migrants you have in an area, the less likely you are to vote. Leave. It's a basis thing, Five fundamentally. Minutes. Five minutes. Okay, thank you. Um, and I, I won't waste my five minutes by explaining why areas with more migrants tend to be thinner. But, but believe me, they are, and there are reasons. <laughs> Uh, the correlation with deprivation, 0 0.03, that's nothing. Like I say, majority of Leave voters, ABC1, it wasn't the poor, it wasn't Middlesbrough, it wasn't Stoke, it wasn't the work white working class, it was the south of England. Uh, even better, these are all the parliamentary constituencies, this is vote Leave, this is deprivation, all the red ones Labour, there ain't nothing there. There is a little thing in the blue dots, slightly poorer, and remember these are Tory constituencies, Slightly poorer Tory constituencies, more likely to vote Leave. Posh Tory constituencies, where you go skiing twice a year at winter, of course you don't vote Leave. But something going on in the Tory party, there ain't nothing. There ain't nothing going on in Labour seats. It's, we're very enumerate. We're the most enumerate country of Europe, which may be another reason. Hence it takes us a long time to get this. 
UKIP are purple, party of the coast, party of the old. The vote, the young, 1824, haven't voted since 1990 because of the poll tax. They did vote last year before last the general election. Doesn't matter how the young vote, there aren't many of them anyway because we haven't had many babies and most of them will be in bed. It's the old. And the key things turn out. Look at the proportion they don't vote. It's tiny. Turnout was really, really important. It's the old that voted us out, not only because they voted leave, but because uh, they actually bothered to vote. Forget that. That just shows you that you can stir up right-wing votes and they drop down far-right votes. This is the rise of the far-right in Britain. To find far-right, really simply, if your political party is to the right of the EPP, which is the main conservative bloc in the European community, which Merkel belongs to, which our Conservatives belong to in 2014, if you are to the right of the EPP, you are far right. If you are to the right of the far right, you're extreme right. It's my very simple way of doing things. We had no far right uh, in the European Parliament in 79-84. We had 0.1% in 89. 1.1, Jimmy Goldsmith, remember this is a posh right-wing thing, referendum party, 7.5. By 2004, it's up to a fifth. By 2009, it's over a third. By 2014, two years before the election, 52.4% of people in Britain in the European elections voted for a far-right party. We send by far the largest number of far-right MEPs to the European Parliament. Because at the European elections, they did so badly, you may not have noticed, but Brexit plus UKIP plus the Tories plus one unionist lost 11 MEPs. Because we had the biggest ever fall in far-right support across Europe since the European Parliament began in this country, Nigel can't find enough friends to form a block, so he won't be able to speak. But you're in far-right central for Europe. That's where we are. People don't notice it because they think it's normal. I'm not going to talk about migration. I'm not going to talk about him. <laughs> but again, I don't know. Maybe it's you, you look at you know, different eyes to Enoch. <laughs> Always a little bit vague. A bit washed out, didn't really quite know where he was. Um, Brexit way. 52% uh, of the votes leave in the south of England were a minority of the electorate. This is a southern old middle class vote. It's not disputable. The geography absolutely isn't because we know it's to every last vote. And because I've got no time, I'll just show you Cornwall. Cornwall, 183,000 people voted to leave. The Nottinghamshire Coalfield, 181,000. More people went to the electoral roll in Nottinghamshire Coalfield, but in Cornwall, they vote leave. Devon, 55%. Dorset, 56%. Hampshire, 54%. 540,000 leave voters. Hampshire's leave central. Just one more minute. Okay. I will do, I will do. More people voting leave in Hampshire than the whole of Sheffield, Murphy, Tidville, Blackpool, Leeds, Derby, Great Yarmouth. Um, you can ask. Right. Because people don't believe me. I've gone through. I haven't <laughs> fixed it. Right? Yes, there are some people who voted leave in the North. But what do the white working class do in the North? They don't vote. That's what you need to don't vote. People always ignore the kind of 34% of people who don't vote. That's the 34% on average don't vote. All these old middle class people are trotting down to vote religiously. So you're looking at 50, 60, 65, 70% of some groups not voting. Don't take a few people from small groups of population who do vote and suddenly tell a story based on that, because it really is ridiculously stupid to do it. Going into the middle of London and out, and let's find one slide to end on that may be of some use. And it would have been, if I can go back, that one.
Oh, you like that one. Let's not be cheery, let's do that one. Standard & Poor report released three weeks before the referendum. Which countries are going to be more affected than Britain? I'll end on this slide. They got it spot on. But they're not bad, some of these financiers. The most affected country would be Ireland. But actually, Ireland's doing okay because it's the only place that will still be in the EU27 where you can, your kids can speak English <coughs> at school. And the key thing is then Malta's affected. Now, Malta is very, very small. Luxembourg's affected because of finance. Luxembourg's very small. Cyprus would be affected by us leaving. Cyprus isn't that important. Switzerland, again, banking connections. Switzerland doesn't get a vote because it's not in the EU. And then Belgium, which is small. And then the Netherlands. How, why did Theresa not get a deal? Because we were in a shit position to do a deal. The last place that left was Greenland, and they had fish, and they made a good deal. And they spent three years over the deal, and I can tell you about the deal. So the good deal is possible. But if all you've got to sell is arrogant bankers who want to rip you off, then you don't get anywhere. 588 pages, only 115 words on the whole finance industry. People say, oh, the Germans, they sell us 10% of their cars, they'll have to negotiate. They're going to be selling us more. Because when you shut down Swindon, you shut down Sunderland. And when they move the robots from Cowley, we're going to have to buy some more cars from Germany. But the really good thing, or the interesting thing, because we're going to get poorer, we already are, we'll be buying the really little ones. <laughs> and the great thing about the really little cars is that they pollute less. And they're also less deadly when they hit you. Um, I mean, Brexit's fascinating. It's a little bit like the Watts riots in the USA. The immediate understanding was completely wrong to the understanding three years later. It's not surprising we found it hard to understand it. It's not a conspiracy in the media to go and blame people in the North. They just don't want, personally, to say it's their mum and dad who live in Hampshire. But they kind of know. Truth is slowly getting out. It's not that hard to get the statistical truth out because you can't actually fake it. It's slowly getting out who wanted to leave, who arranged to leave, what would happen if you do leave. Uh, and we've done a great service to the rest of the continent because we have not, for three years, done our normal thing in the EU, where we are the cheerleaders of all the things you might hate about the EU. Who's argued for it? It's the British who have wanted all that kind of, you have to compete, you can't help your local states, and so on. We were the people who made it, and the nasty parts of the EU have our stamp on them. The EU can probably do a lot better without us, so even if we stay in, we're going to be diminished, and that's probably good. We've got a learning period to go through. Uh, socialism in one, one country that I guess we get on to, never know. The nice thing is that the Irish have promised to send us food. And they weren't taking the piss. They were serious about it. Um, the potato harvest failed last year and the year before because it's too hot. It's bloody hot now. So, you know, if you're going to talk about self-sufficiency, you do need to know that you can't actually put potatoes in the ground and expect them to come out in Britain. What the rest of Europe has learned is if you have any border and any movement across it for any length of time, Deciding you're going to go it on your own is a bit like, I don't know, Liverpool declaring it's its own city-state and that socialism will work. <laughs> you know, it just... But there will always be a few people who believe in this. The European Union currently contains the most equitable, advanced states in the entire planet. The happiest people in some parts of Europe, the best schools, the 
apart from Japan, the longest lived life expectancies, the greatest solidarity, the biggest success in various forms of socialism, in reality, not in your mind, in reality, was currently found in parts of the EU. Have a game and play the idea that you could do it better than that, but we're in the shittest country in Europe. So the, so the idea that you're going to go from that and all the wreckage of the public schools and everything else are suddenly going to create utopia overnight for your revolutionary guard. You can have it if it makes you happy at night, but please think about it a bit more carefully. Thank you very much. Right, so I want to begin with, I'm going to begin with a slightly indiscreet anecdote, which is I'm not for tweeting. Um, for my sins, I'm doing um, a programme on um, Channel 5 about Henry VIII, which is being recorded next week. And obviously, there's lots of parallels drawn between Henry VIII's break with Rome and Brexit um, and so forth. And, you know, England going it alone, plucky little country against the Pope then, against the bureaucrats of Brussels now. And um, the producer of the programme, one Harry Duncan Smith, who I believe is related, um, <laughs> says to me, uh, sends me various emails, sends me an email saying what we'd like to do um, is, we, we've been asked by the Commissioner, can we say something about um, Henry's long-term legacy for Britain? And I said, well, for one thing, it's not Britain. It wasn't Britain then. It's not Great Britain. It's like England, Wales, um, Scotland wasn't part of it. And then Actually, we could do the conquest of Ireland. We could do the Tudor conquest of Ireland and the legacy today of that, which is extremely messy. Or alternatively, we could do Henry's ethnic cleansing in France, if you really want to show Henry as a bad guy. Um, funnily enough, I'm not going to be in that particular episode that deals with those <laughs> issues now. I'm back to doing, you know, Henry, how many of his wives did he murder, da-da-da. You know, Henry, the courtiers, all the court intrigue and politics, because I think that is part of the type of history that... Um, we like to get on TV. So, okay, industry anecdote over. You can start. Um, we can start broadcasting now. Um, I think you know what we get in terms of the teaching of history, which is part of um, Danny and Sally's book. I believe it's more of Sally's research um, than yours. Is a kind of um, you know history that, on the one hand, feeds into these elite attitudes of the people who run the country, but also provides a kind of soft type of cheerfulness about the British past I think is quite important is things like Michael Portillo going on train journeys around India which is partly our trains great isn't this scenery lovely it's a kind of pleasant half an hour to spend in, in you know with ex-Tory politician doing affable chat routine but subliminally it's also about here are the great contributions of the British Empire to um, world civilization, and there's an awful lot of that stuff about, and there's an awful lot of, you know, leaving out some of the messier details of imperial politics, even when they get talked about. There's a great deal of research around what happened in um, 2007, which was the 200th anniversary of the abolition of slavery. And what happened was that everybody talked about the really great time the British abolished slavery, <laughs> ignoring the fact that the British did slavery and enslaved people and made a phenomenal amount of money out of um, transport of African people across the Atlantic and then the kind of industries built on that, that didn't become part of the story because it's much easier to tell people, to tell children in school this kind of nice tale of Wilberforce and increasingly now, rightly, Equiano and African activists participating in this abolition of the bad thing. 
But the difficulty is always that, you know, it's the abolition of the bad things that gets the emphasis, and it's not actually the atrocities. It's not actually the bad things British Empire does. It is there has never been that kind of equivalent, um, you know, without saying the British Empire is the same as the Nazi regime because they're very different historical phenomena. There has never been that process of coming to terms with the problems of a country's past here that there has been in Germany. And you know, I'm not saying Britain is not the only country with this set of problems because I see very similar things um, when I go and work in Italy. Not dealing with the fascist past in Italy is a problem there too. Um, but there's an assumption that actually we can hold on to the nice bits of imperial history. Now, in school education, in university education, in history at the moment, there is a lot of discussion about the problems of this and about how to deal with this. Some of it is quite opportunist, actually, and it rises out the fact that um, people here in university suddenly have realised that almost a third of um, children finishing school now are from black, Asian or minority ethnic backgrounds. And, hey, we work in a market and we have to sell our university places to those students. And if they don't want to come do history, then we are all in trouble. So there is a certain amount of, of like self-interest in this process. But I also think, you know, it is the right thing to do to think about how we have a more inclusive um, history curriculum. But there are actually some real problems in terms of how you implement that, because a lot of the people who are teaching history in schools now have come themselves through a university curriculum that did not particularly teach those subjects or did not teach them very well. And although there are now GCSE options on the curriculum, which would allow you, for example, to teach a long history of migration, there is no time available to teachers to take time out, learn up all that topic get the history right, really understand how to tackle some of these quite difficult issues in the classroom, like, you know, how do you deal with the difficult questions about slavery, which involve, like, you know, atrocities and, you know, physical punishment and rape and so forth? You know, how do you deal with that with young children, right? You know, they're, they're, it's actually quite a challenging subject to teach, and it needs time and investment in facilitating people to teach it and to teach it well and to not fall into the things that every so often you know crop up as an appalling example of hey we got the kids to role play a slave auction which I have seen um, you know from somebody who's no doubt trying to do their best to get across the hideousness of what it was like but actually it's not an appropriate teaching technique so there's a lot of work I think to be done um, on on a school curriculum that involves resources um I think some universities, particularly the universities, the larger Russell Group universities, have got the resources, are able to do more. And there are some very good initiatives at university level, including some that are led by students themselves that have come off the back of things like the, um, the campaign around the Rhodes statue at Oxford, which I think... Um, I mean, you can argue about, you know, leave the statue there, put a plaque on it, take it away, what, you know, what do you do with it? I'm, I'm not terribly bothered about what you do with it, but it's the sort of symbolic value of that statue to raise the broader issues about um, addressing diversity in the curriculum and about kind of decolonizing the curriculum which is an idea with broader implications than just saying well you know add some bits of history in and, and um, you know at least that that has now got onto the agenda a bit more but also that agenda has to some extent been um, 
you know, co-opted and has quite has quite a sort of bourgeois liberal face to it sometimes because there is a definite interest on the part of all these kind of big multinational graduate employers like KPMG and the likes in having graduates who understand African history and politics so they they can go and intervene in helping China with the Belt and Road Initiative or such like. So there's actually... You know, I don't think we should assume that these, um, you know, diversity initiatives are necessarily liberatory in content. There are very different ways of doing a more kind of diverse curriculum. And if, you know, what's going to happen is that your graduates simply go out and, and consult on how to make more money out of exploiting um, the copper belt, then, you know, is that really progress? So I think we should, you know, that there are issues to think through about that. Then I come on to... Um, kind of places outside of formal school and university education. Very, very important um, sites for learning. And I think we need to realise that if we want to educate people better about empire, then those also need resourcing. Um, adult learning has had funds cut by 45% <coughs> since 2009-10, according to the, um, the IFS report in September 2018. Number of adult learners in further education doing apprenticeships has fallen by 29% since 2010-11. I mean, these are huge cuts. That's a million people fallen out of adult education, most of whom were doing those kind of pre-GCSE level qualifications, um, which considered one of the reports I read of this not worthwhile in employment. But that kind of adult education leisure history class that once existed, that was once funded by local authorities, is actually a very important place for people to acquire wider knowledge about the world around them. But an awful lot of that has now been, um, you know, has, has just disappeared. I mean, the cost of the extramural classes in universities is often prohibitive to um, any working class person on a modest kind of wage. It's not, they're either, middle, they're either very middle class intakes or sometimes there's a discount for pensioners, but, you know, fine, but it could go a lot further. And so, what is happening in adult education? What kind of role is available there? Museums and galleries and libraries, again, another potential source of learning. Equally, um, in England alone, there have been massive cuts to these, almost £400 million in eight years between 2011 and 2019. That's local authority-funded um, cultural services. So, again, even if your local museum or gallery has the will to try and tell people more about what is the history of empire? How can we think about this to do some level of political engagement, even on the most basic level? This is extremely difficult to deliver it. And what, again, I think this perhaps plays somewhat, again, into the kind of broader narratives around who voted for Brexit and who didn't, is that the places you see those initiatives happening are by and large in London, where you come up and you have like we you know the Tate did an excellent done these various exhibitions about about black art history, um, you get these large projects. You've got very good stuff happening at the Pitt Rivers in Oxford at the moment. Um, there's a great queer history project going on in the museums at Cambridge. There's lots of innovation, but it's actually in the centres which are really well resourced already, and where there's lots of scope to talk about that stuff. And it's not in the places like Swansea where I work, where you know the museums and galleries are actually struggling to maintain their current opening hours at all, let alone adding on any extra resources. So anything that, like that that happens relies on 
us from the university coming in and doing it in our own work time or realistically adding to our workloads out of what should be our normal working week to do extras. And, you know, it's very, very tough to see how within that funding climate things get delivered. So that then brings me on to, you know, where is the labour movement and the role of the labour movement in all this? Because, I mean, if you go back, go back, back before all this sort of thing was funded by the local authority, a lot of it was delivered, um, you know, <coughs> through things like the Workers' Educational Association, through types of in independent working class education, where people basically got together and did some education, did um, work on teaching one, one another about this history for themselves. And some of that obviously feeds into and engages with different university extramural departments and so forth. Um, and I think to some extent this is a thing that is going to have to happen again. And that might well be something that, I mean, obviously, you know, this weekend is doing a great job of putting on, um, you know, a range of educational discussions and all sorts of topics that, you know, I would even find difficult to access within my academic career, you know, never mind, never mind anything else. Um, so I think that that is a step forward. But I think that it's also something to talk about in Labour Party branches, in trade union branches. Is there scope to hold reading groups? Is there scope to have discussions? Because, um, you know, you could rely on you could, you could rely on the school system doing it up to a point. You could ask the universities to do it, but inevitably that's going to be fairly small numbers of people in any given university subject. And so I think there is a kind of broader question. I'd be interested to hear people's views about um, self-education, the role of sort of independent working class education and how that might help equip people to challenge some of these ideas about Brexit, which I think often, you know, in the way that they come through in the media are not so necessarily explicitly stated. It's more about often what is not said and what is left out of the mainstream um, narratives of history that we get on screen. You know, there are some honourable exceptions, um, which are great, but I think there is, you know, more to do, perhaps more to do at the grassroots with talking to people about um, this history of Britain and the British Empire and what it was and how it played out in um, multiple ways across the world um, in order perhaps better to have those arguments about Britain's position in the world today and how that relates to Brexit. Thank you. Um, yeah, uh, Liam's first point. We really have learned that the elite are not as well organised as you think they are. Um, don't don't overestimate them. I mean, I, one lovely thing about the job I have now is I get to meet loads of them, and um, you know, but, and also, but we aren't necessarily that able either. But the elite certainly are not. There are groups within it. Jacobs Rees Mogg's dad wrote a book called Sovereign Wealth. William Rees Mogg, which is a plan for Brexit and hedge funds and so on. Um, but things are falling apart. So things things are falling apart now. Uh, I think Ken's Ken's uh, point, Ken Lee's point, was really interesting. People are frightened. Uh, people are frightened. Catherine Blakelock set up the Brexit Party only last year. Uh, she was expelled in April from her own party that she set set out for her Islamic phobic tweets. Um, but it's incredible how fast opinions can change uh, with fear. And the middle class of Hampshire are frightened. They've got a mortgage and a house. 
they can't see their children ever getting that they're going to rent and they can't see their grandchildren ever paying off the debts um, Sukar's one on, on, on I do agree I mean sort of trivially I define I use far right and, and use the word far because far is positional you know left and right positional far is positional but you do have to look at the content in general to the parties I think of as far right they are pretty they're pretty nasty you look at their policies who they align with where the content gets really difficult is with the EPP who are conservative but some of Merkel's policies are to the left of Corbyn I'll leave it at that but the, but the really interesting thing about the, about the content is because within each country of Europe politics is one way or another we were one of the more left wing countries in the 70s we were the second most equal large country after Sweden we were basically Scandinavian Dominic Sandbrook did a huge disservice when he produced that awful series in the 70s. And all our parties were to the left. The Tories were building more council houses than Labour. Everything moved to the right. So, that, so there is a big problem about comparing uh, politics across Europe. Because they all, and they're really narrow. I mean, Corbyn's manifesto is to spend 38% of GDP on public services, the Tories are on 36. That difference is tiny, it doesn't take us anywhere. I mean, it is the most it is possible, I think. I'm not even a gradualist. You know, that is as revolutionary as far as British politics goes. Um, I'll stop at that, but it's, it's interesting. Uh, Elaine was talking about the teaching of history um, and, and worrying about it, about how bad it might be now. The thing to make this positive is to look at those results, look at opinions by age. The reason, it's not the young are not naturally born nicer people. Right? The, the reason why you have more bigotry at older ages and, and more niceness at younger ages is a changing society that's getting better. You do not naturally become more conservative as you age. That's a myth. Um, and you can get the opposite. So we know that the very old, people over 90, were pro-Remain, quite very, very liberal in their views about people because they come from an era where you were more collective and you are all, all in it together. Matt was talking about the connections with imperialism, saying how strong was it the problem is our entire economy is based on imperialism for 200 years so when we talk about the 70s and things going wrong and the trade unions were blamed and so on what went wrong was the captive markets went we are taught history where you're taught everything we invented because we supposedly invented it all but we forced people to buy it and when they didn't have to buy it anymore they bought the better stuff that was slightly cheaper for something else. Um, and then and it, one more minute and then in the 80s we did the big bang as for the banks as we desperately attempted to reconstruct uh, imperialism. Punching above our weight, George Oswald said, if you follow his great economic plan, we'll be number one in the world again. Right? <laughs> that is imperial. But it's led. It's led. It's, it's led the thing. Um, nostalgia for the past. Wanted to be winners. Uh, that's like technical very quickly. Uh, ABC One, yes, it's old, it's crap. It's Stevenson's uh, definition of social class from 1911, the Register General. Um, it's all we have. Lord Ashcroft, bless him has funded these enormous polls. Um, and he funded the Brexit, the enormous exit poll of Brexit because he assumed that they were going to lose. And he wanted to produce all the evidence of who'd been wronged when it was 52% remain, 48% leave. And all you've got, I'm afraid, is ABC1. You, you can be hell of a lot more sophisticated than that, but that's all the data we have and that we're never going to get. Um, Hannah, why, why the story? Partly by accident. Uh, the script was written that night when Joe was murdered by a man shouting Britain first that was it there was no thought 
in W1A in the BBC studio that Leave were going to win. They weren't ready. When the camera zoomed in on that blonde lady and two bald men in Sunderland, if you remember that point, banging their heads at the producer was the story. And Sunderland always reports first. The story was made up on the night. It was because the story, you could see it, because if you really tragic, you can watch that election broadcast. And you can watch them scrabbling around and making up a story on the night. It's then copied by a Guardian journalist, middle-class Guardian journalist, like me, almost my age, okay, and one who actually looks like me, who loves talking about the northern working class and want to go up on the train and walk around bits of the north showing how credible they are. And if only... It is John. And I do like John. If only John had just gone down to Hampshire and just walked... Not Winchester, you've got to walk ten miles out of Winchester. Right? But, but also the Guardian readers loved it too. And the Guardian readers live in the south of England and they love hearing about poverty somewhere else because they care but it's their neighbours it's, it's not Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Sorry. Um, Kath. okay I'm just gonna, I'm going to start actually with Pat's point last about I mean I think one there was a really interesting poll that just came out a few days ago about what I can't remember there was Tory voters or Brexit voters care about and they clearly said we do not care if Scotland becomes independent or if Ireland becomes united as a consequence of this we don't care anymore and that's their base and the, this kind of comes back then to a very first question from Liam about who is the you know what is the nature of the Tory party now and their, pro- their basic problem is that they want to be the party of capital but young people have not got any capital and none of them thought far enough in advance when they sold off all the council houses etc and gave some people some capital briefly um, you know how they were going to maintain that group of the kind of small you know working class pro capital people you, you know it's difficult to be pro capital when you haven't got any at all and that's the thing they haven't worked through in terms of how to organize themselves as a party so they've now got this situation where they're not getting majorities and where they have got to try and appeal to some other people in some other way than simply you know i want to have be a homeowner etc because there aren't the homeowners out there to vote for them. You know, landlords with 50 properties still only got one vote. doesn't work. So that that is an issue there, I think. Um, question about community groups and schools engaging with universities. I mean, I think it's, it, it's really quite difficult. Universities in particular, also large museums and galleries, are very impenetrable in terms of who you go and talk to. And I, my best piece of advice is try and find, you know, one individual who is a lecturer in the re- relative relevant department who are generally quite visible online to go and have a chat with I mean people are generally very happy to hear from community groups who want to work with them there are workload issues but you know try emailing around a few people and get in touch right yeah no that's fine I'm I'm, have a chat we can have a chat at lunch if you want sort of some more specific um, advice about that I mean, I think on this kind of wide, the question of sort of wider nationalism in schools and teaching is absolutely something that I see. Um, I mean, interesting. I'm in the person in my history department. I um, kind of theoretically cover dissertation topics where students get to pick their own research topic between about 1500 and 1800. By far the most topi- popular topic I get is Tudor queens. 
which I think represents something about, one, what's in school curriculum, but also what's in kind of popular culture, TV shows on Netflix, dramatisations, um, young adult literature, which is about, like, the psychology of Anne Boleyn. Yeah, I mean, that, that, but that's, that's, what, that's what students come to me and ask for when they get a free choice. And so there is a lot of that broader culture out there, which is like, you know, royals and flag waving. And, you know, that is reflected. Um, so that, that again, I, I think you know, th there's an element there. I think people have sort of discussed between themselves the question of imperial nostalgia. So I'll just finish on this, like the, the narrative of white working class people voting leave. I think, I mean, one other issue besides what Danny said about this is the question of the sort of social media and micro campaigns. I mean, quite anecdotally around me in Swansea, a lot of the pro-Brexit campaigning online was about you've been let down by the establishment. You've been let down by Blair. You've been let down by the Labour Party. You've been let down by all these bastards. If you want to do something to wake them up, vote Brexit. And I think that is a kind of, and, you know, there is significant votes, you know, in South Wales that, that are prompted by some of that. So I think there are also these kind of micro considerations to think about that in quite small um, places, perhaps there are, you know, perhaps there are issues there. But I mean, I think in general, you know, the evidence is that that's not the thing. I think you want to say something about, about that. Um, OK, just one yeah. thing, um, just to, to as I said, uh, I no longer use the phrase white working class. I've got no time to tell you why not, but it's important to know that there are people not using it. You've got to look at who introduced that phrase and why they did it. So, and I didn't have to say that because I forgot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, but I think, I mean, I think that, that really is to say, to say that, that, that leave voters are not, you know, even working class leave voters are not one homogeneous vote. And within particular communities, um, people may have had kind of, you know, between friendship groups, people have got particular motivation, particular ideas that get themselves going and trying to do this. And the, and the statistics that we've got from, you know, just do not tell us at that micro level what is going on in somebody's head when they walk into the polling booth. But certainly what we were seeing, like, locally in, in the social media was a lot of just bash all politicians generally say, you know, we want to get the old industry back, this was the problem, and this sort of sense that we might go back to better days... And that was a factor for all sorts of people, but it's just, it isn't going to happen. It's not, you can't magically kind of recreate um, a golden age of 50s, 60s mining and industrial life, even if actually that was as desirable as the myth um, had it, which I don't really think it is. <laughs>